Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. They're two people who are uh, definitely not phonies, I would say. How's it going? Oh, thanks, David. David, thank you. Thank you. You're I not mean, a phony either, David. You're, <laughs> like, for real, not a phony, like, ever. <laughs> so. uh, uh, thanks. Yep. Well, we are here to discuss Catch from the Rye, uh, J.D. Salinger's uh, Controversial but also beloved and very popular novel from the 19... I guess 1951 was when it was published. And we are going to talk about it over the next three weeks, and then we're going to do the Q&A episode. Before we do that, though, I want to remind people about some of the ways that they can get in touch. If you've been listening for a long time, then you already know about our Facebook group, uh, the Close Reads podcast discussion group. Lots of discussion going on there. Um, Peas Like a River had... had uh, Feels like maybe a record amount of conversation going on. People really liked talking about that book. I suspect that Catcher in the Rye is going to have plenty of similar conversation, although there might be more hate discussion going on. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to either vent or celebrate this book, then you can head over there and do that. You can also find us on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And you can email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And then finally, we do have our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. And we are going to have a new uh, edition of that going out uh, today. So by the time you have heard this episode, that will be in your mailboxes. But you can sign up for that and see the archives on that. It'll be a mailbox edition. And then a little bit of extra um, content about this book and about why people love it. And some links to some critical essays and things like that. So if you're interested, you can head over to closereads.substack.com if you're not already signed up for that. Guess I should also mention the uh, the Patreon episodes. We are uh, this week. We'll have the second episode of our crime and punishment conversations going up, and in my opinion, it's one of the best episodes that we've ever done together. So, I hope you'll check that out. You can also support the show in addition to getting some sweet show swag. So uh, that like rolled right off the tongue. Practicing, that was awesome. Practicing. All done. <laughs> uh, so there's lots of ways you can get in touch, and lots of ways you can be involved, including getting the bonus content and supporting the show over on Patreon. That's Patreon.com/slash Close Reads. So. I want to just say, well, the reason we're doing this book is because each year we have kind of a fundraising auction to help us support uh, the parent company and the show and all that. And last year, our uh, our power listener group, what do, you, what do we want to call them? They, they call themselves Jokos Reads. Uh, I like power listener. Yeah, there are... Uh, I like that too. All right. So that's what we'll call them. There are you know, longtime supporters of the show. And... They got together and they bidded uh, collectively on an auction item, which was the opportunity or the chance to choose a book that we read on the show. Um, I found out recently from one of our listeners who is in that group, Jesse Brown, that they were considering doing Peace Like a River as the book they were going to choose. But then they found out that that was on my short list. So they went with, uh, they went with Catcher in the Rye as book that they wanted us to talk about. And I'm going to come back around to that because they sent me a list or Jesse sent me a list of reasons why they chose it. And I want to come back around to get a sense of some of the things that motivated them to choose this book, which they know full well is a little controversial and which many people don't like. But before we do that, I want to turn to each of you and get your sort of history of this book 
um, and your experiences with it. And then before we dive in, I will provide a little bit more context for this book uh, with some information that people might be interested in. But Tim, let me turn to you first. Uh, this is a book that is um, between, I think, 1961 and 1985 was the single most taught book in American schools. Wow. In colleges. It beats Huckleberry Finn. Uh, and it, no other book was taught more often in schools than The Catcher in the Rye. During, wow. During those decades. I think it's been bumped down a little bit, but it's still in the top five uh, since the mid 80s. You were in school, um, in at least in that range. Yeah. So I'd love to know if you read this in high school or maybe even middle school um, and what your first impressions of it were back then. I remember my first reading as being the summer of my junior year in college. And it, it, I may have read it before then, but I don't remember reading it before then. But I distinct, I, I had kind of an event mm. when I read this book after my uh, junior year in college. Go on. Well, I, I like was... the book or the I, reading I of it was an event or there was an event that happened while you were reading it that makes it memorable? I was um, living near a really good friend of mine. And I'm trying to be kind of opaque about this. <laughs> I was living near a really good friend of mine and he read the book. I fell in love with the book. I loved it. I mean, I just thought I got so neck deep in Holden Caulfield. I was really moved by it. I was really wrapped up in it. Hmm. And I gave it to him and I recommended it and he hated it. Hmm. He hated it. He didn't understand why anybody would read it. And moving forward a few years, this is the only friend that I have ever broken up with. <laughs> and it doesn't have anything to do with the book, but I mean, I think he but would write it. Does. Yeah. I was like, golly, how could he hate this book so much? And I love it so much. And us be such good friends. It was, it was the, so, the moment of truth. This book. It was the, it was the beginning of the moment of truth. Yeah. At least it, sh- it, yeah. it, it revealed that he was a phony. so how many times have you read it since that summer before your junior year of college i think this is my this read for close reads is my third okay so do you remember when the second time was no i I think it was probably my late 20s early 30s something like that do you remember whether your perspective on it had changed did you still like it i still liked it and so and i still like it now okay all right let's Turn to you, Heidi. So when did you first read it? Was it a high school thing for you? Yeah, high school in honors English, my junior year of high school. Ooh, you were in honors. <laughs> That's a shocking turn of events. I'll tell you what I was not in honors in. Honors math. I was in- <laughs> <laughs> you and Holden, right? <laughs> right. Both in honors English. Uh, hey, by the way, I just have to say something, Heidi, since you were not familiar with my brand of student when you know we were each in high school. Do you know what they called the lower division of English, which I was thankfully not in, but I think I was right on the cusp. You were in the mid-tier? I was in the, yeah, I was like lower to mid-tier. <laughs> they called the lowest tier, you're just not going to believe it, they called it communication lab. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you've fallen if you were in Aww. communication lab. And I was barely keeping out of communication lab. That's really funny. I think I'm sad. For- as someone who didn't do well in math, I feel like that's also what they were calling my math classes. Communication, Communication lab. lab. It was like, it was like a, a introduction to logical thinking or something like that. Right, they exactly. Just used, so they taught you math with letters. Like, just do your best. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's like you were relegated. Yes. Oh, um, sorted. So did you did you like it in high school then? How do you- so I had, I think what I'm learning is a pretty unique experience with Catcher in the Rye. Most people love this book or hate this book. And in high school, I was like, meh about Catcher in the Rye. I remember wow. reading it. I remember writing about it. I remember I, I remember the teacher. I had just the best teacher. And I remember her talking about some of the events that happened later in the novel and explaining the structural significance and me being like, oh, that's cool. But I did not have a strong emotional reaction one way or the other. And that's the only time I've ever read it until now. Mm. So you haven't read it since you you haven't picked it up. You haven't. No, I mean I thought thought about it. Okay. Yeah, you know that's it's one of those books. I'm like, oh, I should reread Catcher in the Rye, but I was so met about it at the time, like it just didn't make a big impression. I remember it being funny, and I I remember it laughing, and then I remember it kind of taking a downward trajectory in me. You know, I remember it. I actually don't remember the ending at all. I have no memory of the end of this novel, Um, but. I just didn't, it just didn't make a big impression. And like I said, I've learned since that that's unique. Most people have a very strong reaction one way or the other. How about Mm. you, David? Um, Very similar to Tim. I didn't read it in high school. Um, I guess I just didn't go to, I guess, my Christian school. And then the one year that I was homeschooled, my dad didn't uh, have us reading this (laughs) during high school. Um, So I read (laughs) it. Well, I guess it wasn't my junior. I read it the next year when I was, I had dropped out of Bible college and was uh, living with Graham. Wandering the streets of New York, staying in CD hotels. I was wandering the streets of Dubuque, Iowa in the middle of winter, (laughs) working at a um, very rundown A&W restaurant that I could walk to. I could actually slide down it on the snow from the front door of this very old house that we lived in. (laughs) And uh, I worked there because I didn't have a car. And it was very cold and I didn't want to walk very far. So I worked there and I remember standing behind the grill, reading it when it was slow. And then I would just stick it in my back pocket when I had to do something. So that was my first experience with this book. That's a great story. That's very Southern Gothic. I feel like that would be a scene in the opening of a movie. Yeah. I just remember like, you know, you work at like a greasy fast food place and, and you know, my, in the rye. Yeah. Fold the book up. It probably has like a little old paperback version and then stick it in my back pocket when I had to clean something or cook something. And when there was a little slow, just pull it out. And I would like to know actually where that copy of that book is because it's probably covered in like fast food grease stains and you know that is an correlative to this novel. Did you <laughs> like it? Yeah, I mean I was 19 or whatever. Um I think it I think like Timot probably was um, um, spoke to something in yeah. nineteen year old um, trying to find a way in the world version of me. Um, mm-hmm. Now I'm just a thirty three year old version of still trying to find my way in the world. Uh, but I don't know that this book would Word. be the one that would speak to me so much. Um, but I'm I read it again in my late twenties, probably so not that long ago. But weirdly, I don't really remember it. I think I read it quickly when there was a lot of other stuff going on in my life over like a day or two. And I don't have a lot of, I didn't read it closely. So I'm, I'm interested in how a well close read changes my perspective on it because I, I, um, today the way I think about it is an interesting book that, um, I'm a little nervous to read on the podcast (laughs) Uh, because a lot of people I know don't like it. And I've had 
you know, Cersei at I've had conversations at Cersei events, at close reads type events where people are very get very heated about it, either because they love it and are trying to defend it and it means something really um powerful to them, really mm-hmm. profound to them. It you know the it's very important to them. And then there's people who just don't understand why, you know, like Tim's friend, we would read such a book like this, fill our head with such things and, and so forth. So it'll be, can we talk about why, sorry to cut you off, David, why people don't like it? Yeah. That that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Great. So, so it seems to me that there are, uh, we should see if we can just eliminate the obvious things. I mean, not eliminate them in terms of like their valid reasons for not liking this book, but they're, they're obvious. So let's just put those out there. On the one hand, there is the, all the language. So a lot yeah. of people just don't want to read, you know, all the, the swearing. So that, that seems like an obvious one, which, you know, that, that's a perfectly valid reason. And, um, I, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is what right. it is. We support it's, that. It's there. Yeah. So then what, if we get beyond that, what, what would you say are maybe, ones that are less obvious and maybe vary from person to person. Tim, do you have like, what did your friend say? Was it, was it the, the curse, the curse words, the language? I, I think he just felt like the entire subject matter was just lowbrow. Hmm. Like, what are we, t- what are we doing here, guys? We're not unlike our previous book. We're not trying to find a lost brother. We're not, there's not trying to find, there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing noble in it. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, what would you say, Heidi? Yeah, all of that. And just Holden is not very likable. He's not, you know, the nice young man that he's constantly referencing as a phony. So he's, and I I think it's painful. He thinks in a very true adolescent way. Like very true adolescent way. It's interesting. I'm reading this at the same time, and you guys are doing the same thing. That I'm listening to all the pretty horses, mm. and yeah, like I just finished it. Yeah, contrast between the two main characters in terms of their ages and um, our access to their inner life. Like Holden Caulfield thinks like a real teenager, and teenagers are the worst. And so <laughs> yeah. that's part of it. I think it's painful for us. The teenagers listening like, are like, what? Well, it's, I mean, you're and then they're like, it's so true. self Yes, exactly. So, and I think that's why I responded the way I did. I was thinking about this as I was reading it and, um, and thinking as responded a teenager, to it when you were, when you first yes, read it, when yeah. I was 16 and reading it and thinking, well, this is just like every day in the lunchroom. Like this is, I didn't understand the access I was getting into this kind of mind because it was just like my mind. Mm. So I took mm. it seriously. I like really took this book very, like I just accepted him as he was without any kind of uh, judgment and in the true sense of the word judgment, any kind of thinking about the thinking, any kind of meta narrative, I didn't pick up on it at all. Mm. And I think as adults, especially as parents, we're like, oh, it's either like eye rolling or just painful sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it, there is some subtlety in this book that that I think we need to keep an eye on. because, And one of the things that I'd love to kind of just keep front and center as we're talking about it over the next three or four episodes is the question of, um, given the themes and given some of the subtlety, should high schoolers be reading it? It's a great Because question. that is, it's... 
it's the, like I said, it was the most hot book in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And still today, um, it is one of the most hot books. And, and whether, even if our, even if we can sort of protect our kids from reading it, so to speak, protect our kids mm-hmm. um, in high school because they're homeschooled or because they go to a Christian school that wouldn't read it because of the language or something. When they get to college, if they pursue a, a sort of life in letters, a life in, in English and literature and things like that, they're going to almost certainly run across it. Um, or at least at some point, they're probably going to pick it up for themselves. So I think that's something that we should uh, keep front and center. Before we dive into the to it, though, I do want to uh, provide some context for this. And then I'm going to share what Jesse had to say. As I said, it was one of the most uh, most taught books in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But even to this day, since its publication in 1951, to this day, 1 million copies are sold every year. Hmm. That's, that's incredible. More than 65 million copies have been sold. I mean, that in book sales, that's absolutely the only word. Wow. Tim used the best word, right? Like a million books being sold in one year is, you know, a book becomes a bestseller of 10,000 copies are sold. So, right. um, yeah. you know, yeah. if you get to 100,000 copies, it's a great success. So a million copies are sold every year, not just one year, but every year of this book. Wow, that's staggering. Really. David, before we hear from Jesse, I, I want to just throw something else in here. One of the things that I think we should be reading for is whether or not this book is anything more than like the literature gateway drug. Because I think that's the reason that it sells so many copies is that the voice is so, as Heidi said, it's the voice of an adolescent. And I think it's great. I think it's greatest merits is it its voice. Hmm. And the question for me upon reading it for the third time is a grown man is, okay, is that all that it is? Is it just a way for a young person who thinks like this, who doesn't want to read literature, who wants to work on their car or chase girls, you know, they're hopefully going to identify with this. And thus the teacher thinks I'm going to get them into the reading life, hopefully. But then the question is for me, okay. So I think this book is very successful at that. Is it anything more than that? Hmm. That's kind of one of the things that I'm going to keep my eye on. That's a good well, question. So Time Magazine in 2005, they had a list of the 100 best English language novels. It was included on that. It was named on the Modern Library and its readers as one of the 100 best English language uh, novels of the century. The Guardian had a list recently. It showed up at number 72 on that. Um, BBC had a survey where it came up at number 15 on the best novels of the 20th century. So there are a lot of lists and a lot of readers and critics who would argue that it is more than that. Adam Gopnik for The New Yorker once said that it was one of the three best American novels along with uh, Moby Dick and I think he said Moby Dick and Huckleberry Finn. So, you know, it it has its defenders from that perspective. So maybe we should try to, you know, as we're talking, try to get a sense of why that might be. But let's go ahead and hear from Jesse because I asked her to come on and she said she couldn't because one of her children was in dance lessons or something. Um, um, so I said, okay, then you need to send me a list. Oh, no, speech, speech class. Um, send me a list of some of the reasons why you all chose it. And again, it wasn't just Jesse, but she kind of became the voice for the group. But this, this was a book that was nominated by the, the group of readers, the Joe Coast readers who collectively bid for it in the auction. So uh, thanks for doing that. Not just because you got to choose the book, but because you you really support the show and what we're doing here by by bidding on that. So thank you. Um, and so this is what Jesse said. Uh, she said, she said, 
I'll just read some of these in bullet points. So catcher in the right has a lot going for it, minus the swear words. That's where she started. Uh, so she did, you know, throw that as she understands that. She pointed out that it's something many of our children will one day have to read and many of them will love. Thus, the, So the implication is we should try to understand it. Um, it has been accepted, as we've said here, for, as great literature for a long time. So we can try to figure out why. She pointed out that Graham Pittman likes it and Graham cameos are my favorite. That's what she said. Uh, Grammyos, that's what we're going to call them. Grammyos. <laughs> it's also a cereal. Um, Perfect. Gra- Grammyos is a cereal. No, I, well, I'm saying it should be. I'm saying it's not literally a cereal. It should yeah. be. Um, uh, she says Holden Caulfield is as real as you or me, which I think is an interesting mm-hmm. uh, way of putting it and worth keeping uh, front and center. She said, Holden Caulfield will break your heart while also reminding you how lovable humans are. Hmm. <laughs> she also said that when she was bidding uh, the day, it was the day before her birthday. So she threw that in there as well. And she said that, she said this wasn't in her pitch last, last May to the group when they, when they bid, when they chose what book to, 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 uh, to, to select as a group. But she said that the biggest reason that she pulled for the group to bid on Catcher in the Rye is that Holden has been her realist book friend for the longest time. And I hmm. wanted to share him with my other book friends, uh, the close readers. She's so great. So her. that's a great defense. Yeah. So those are, those are some things that, you know, are why the group chose it. So if you, if you're angry at the, the group of people for choosing this book that you don't like, then, you know, hopefully you'll, you know, even if you don't read, hopefully you'll listen along and try to get a sense of what else is going on in this book or that's there who you can get angry at. You know, but but as I said in the email newsletter that's going out, if you like this series and you like this book, then we were definitely the ones who chose it, and you should go review the podcast with five stars. So, well done. Nice segue. <laughs> Let's get into the beginning of this book, because as you said, the voice is kind of its defining characteristic, and we get that right from the self-deprecating first line, which seems to be hearkening to not just uh, Charles Dickens, which. Um, Salinger immediately references, which Holden Caulfield references by saying the David Copperfield kind of crap. But it also seems to be referencing uh, Huckleberry Finn and his his sort of his sort of line at the beginning that you know don't try to read too much into this. Um, but it says if you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me. And all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. So let's talk about then what defines this voice. And Tim, you, you were talking about that, I think, first. So can you give a little bit of a summation of what you most identify as being the defining characteristics of this voice? And maybe what you most identify personally with in the voice of Holden Caulfield? Well, I, I agree so strongly with Jesse. Like... Holden Caulfield is as real a character as I've ever read. He's so, and I don't just mean like he's real as in hashtag real talk. (laughs) I mean, he's just so accurately drawn. He's the kind of character that you read him and you're like, oh man, yes, I know this guy. I know this guy. This guy was me. He was in my high school class. And then he also there'll be certain decisions that he makes that surprise you, but they surprise you. And then when they happen, you're like, of course he's doing this. This is exactly what he would do. And I couldn't have predicted it, but I knew somehow it was going to happen. Um, hmm. And so you when I said the voice, well, yeah, I, I didn't see it coming, but when it happened, I knew it had to be. Mm. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
and there's and so I think his the way that we get to know Holden is chiefly through his self through his self monologue. It's a little bit through what he actually says to other characters, which is great, but most of it is through just the way that he thinks about things and the way that he thinks about things is so satisfying and infuriating at the same time. The most infuriating thing is everything is stated in terms of always being absolutes. Mm -hmm. My father never speaks to me, you know, like things like this. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Ackley always is cleaning his nails when he comes into my room. You know, it just, yeah. everything is in like harsh black and white. And it's part of that, that age. And it's, it's like one of the most infuriating things about that age. And it's also kind of like one of the most endearing things about that age. Hmm. In a way, yeah. like I'm glad I'm not mm. mired in it anymore, mm. but, um, oh, I just think that, my Sal seven-year-old Andrew. does that, so. <laughs> does that mean he's Maybe when you're early onset teenager? Yeah, it probably does. <laughs> probably does. Wait, no, he's eight now. Those are some of the things about the voice. And I also think the cadence of the cadence of the voice kind of does two things at once. It, oh, how do I say this? Holden is absolutely self-obsessed i mean he's just locked in his own ego Mm -hmm. and at the same time he's also very self-effacing i mean you hear it in that first line Mm -hmm. if you really want to hear about it you know and then he talks about his childhood is lousy so everything is of great importance and it's also he's very condescending to himself about his story Mm -hmm. and it hits both those notes back and forth, back and forth throughout the entire novel. It's, it feels like he doesn't think much of himself. And yet he also sees himself as like this hero in some kind of epic, or he desperately wants to be the yes. hero in a kind of epic and yeah. yet doesn't yeah. think he's, he's really the right person for it. You know, he, and you mentioned this inner monologue. Can you define that a little bit? Like, I mean, you were giving some examples of things you like. I, I mean, I, re- I really like what you said about how he's using these extreme, this extreme language. And that that's one of the defining characteristics of his voice. Can you be a little more specific in what you mean by the inner monologue? Are you talking about a sort of stream of consciousness thing? Or is there something, is there an actual term you're using there that has, you know, capital I, capital M that you'd like to define? Well, I, when he's having a conversation with anybody, mm-hmm. let's say Ackley, when Ackley comes into his dorm room, he, Ackley will say, no. Holden will say something in reply to Ackley. He'll say, I know that Ackley sport. And then there'll come a long kind of um, descriptive inner monologue about what he thinks about how much Ackley hates being called Ackley sport. Yeah, right. Well, thanks so much, Ackley sport. You're a prince. Ackley hated it when I called him sport. He hated it because this and this reason. And he was always doing this and this and this. I appreciate it. Actually sport. You're a prince. And so it's that it's not, it's a little bit what Holden says. That's funny, but it's partly that this, this talk, it's so, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Um, theatrical it drives everything forward. It's very theatrical. It drives everything forward. Everything's in black and white. Mm. So Heidi, you've been reading it again. 
for the first time I hadn't read it in a long time and didn't have, and you were meh about it when you first read mm-hmm. it. So does the voice or the characteristics of the voice that appeal to Tim stand out to you this time? Yes, absolutely. I noticed the same thing. I mean, he's, it's a very informal conversation. It reads kind of like a really long Facebook status or, you know what it sounds like? It really does sound like a therapy session. This is exactly what a therapy session, if you're curious about therapy sessions, this is what they're like. Someone just starts talking about themselves and they talk in their own voice. So it's very informal. Um, and and then jump from topic to topic. And it's, if you're in the therapist chair, you're making these connections for them. You're like, okay, so you're telling me you're not going to do all the David Copperfield kind of crap. And then you immediately start talking about your childhood. Interesting. Let's talk about that. Right. Like, so, um, that, very self-revelatory tone, but the person thinks they're managing the tone, but they're not like it's, they're revealing themselves all the time, but they think that they have kind of managed your impression. And I love, mm. I, I really liked that about the book this time. Mm. I was thinking about how it does kind of have a, well, actually we talked about this with Peace Like a River, how it had a, has like an oral like it seems like they're telling us just telling the story as opposed to writing it. And that definitely shows up here. Like he, he, he the, the, and I think it shows up in the diff. There's not much of a difference between the way he talks to people and the way he talks to himself. Like the syntax, the language, the formality of it is sort of all is very similar in terms of the nature of the language itself. So there's, you know, sometimes, whereas sometimes the, you'll get an, a narration and the, the point of view of that narration is very formal and very buttoned right. up and put together and very literary in a sense. And then the dialogue will be different, but here the dialogue, the way he talks to his friends is the way he's talking to us. You know, it's not really any different. Right. Well, it's so well structured to your point. Like it's like tight as a drum. It's brilliant. Um, but it does sound very, I mean, that's JD Salinger, right? What an author he's, this is incredible. Um, and so I think without, <laughs> to go back to the reason why it sells so well, you even if you don't know that you recognize how well-written something is, you respond to a very well-written narrative. So I think that that's part of the appeal is that it's just so tightly structured along, but it feels very informal. Like you're just having a conversation or listening to somebody talk about themselves. And it's also really funny. And we, I, mm. I do not talk like, this like I do not use all this profanity but it's funny like it's it's really great like it's super humorous and if you took out all the swear words it would not be as funny it would be as good but it wouldn't be as funny so let's yeah let's talk about this I I feel like we have to we should we should just do this we should just (laughs) have a conversation about it take the bull Um, by the horns yeah I mean people obviously there's a lot of people who are are going to be put off by that and that's a perfectly valid reading. So what I, I what I want to ask first is why does why does Salinger have it so front and center and then what is the effect of it? So you're you're saying that it wouldn't be as funny so that there's a that there's a humorous aspect of that and I feel like a lot of people will just reject the notion that the cursing can be humorous outright. I know. So, and that's um, fair. So can you talk about like what what do you think is the sort of dramatic effect of and purpose of all this language because you know after a while you start realizing 
you know, it's one thing for this kid to talk like that sometimes. And then, uh, and it, like, it's just a habit. Uh, but there's a difference between something being a habit and in this case, maybe a bad habit and something being a purposeful. Right. Like he is curating or cultivating a character in himself. And the language is part of that. Like he thinks that he has to talk or this way or express himself this way because that's what the kind of person he's trying to be does. So it goes beyond just like, it's a bad habit into like, I'm, he's actively making the choice to do that. And in the same way, Salander is making an active choice to have this much, you know, of the language there, particularly the, the GD phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll just not, even when we're reading, we'll just not we'll just say, say GD. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, on the show, just for obvious reasons. But so, so that's my question. What, what, how do you, how do you take that? How do you respond to that? Well, it's part of Holden Caulfield. He, I think it, I think it does add to the humor, but I also see if it's distracting, it's, um, then disorienting. like you said, it's or disorienting or, or if it even is like tempting or puts bad thoughts in your head, you know, like all those things, or you don't want your kids exposed to it. All those things are perfectly valid. I'm not defending the cursing, but yeah. it absolutely adds to the atmosphere of the novel uh, with some dark humor. And then also it adds a pathos to what could be interpreted as lighthearted talking. Like it lets you know there's something troubled in this boy. Mm. And so it, makes, um, it makes what seems yes, like it could be lighthearted serious. It does, but it also makes it funny. So it does, again, serves a literary purpose in the novel. It does both things. It's used both ways. And that is skill. <laughs> Whether or not it's moral, mm. it's skilled. Yeah, yeah. Tim, do you take the sort of persistence of his, you know, his commitment to this sort of way of speaking to be humorous? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's accurate. Like, I believe these Pincy boys talk this way. Now, I think it'd be a fun question to ask, why do they talk this way? Mm-hmm. You know, like, is every kid in 1945 talking this way? No, there's something about this kind of demographic of young boy that's talking this way. I, I suspect that, like, farm boys from Iowa in 1945 are not speaking this way. Yeah, By the way, were very, they were doing something similar, but in a different way. <laughs> Maybe so. But I, I mean, my suspicion is that farm boys in Iowa who are still on the farm and not at this elite boarding school in New York had probably enough. They were probably living in adult um, cultures enough that speaking that way was just not going to be accepted. Whereas this little Petri dish of adolescence that's kind of growing in the dorm of this school tolerates that um there's not so much the adults are just not around that much and so it gives a certain freedom that these boys exploit and i think it's accurate i i believe that this is the way that those boys talk yeah and so i think it's funny and i but i also think he's not larding up the narrative with curse words to somehow be sensational i think he's this is like part of the journalistic aspect of being a mm. novelist. Mm. I was thinking about um, how Salinger spent, he fought in World War II. He had written some of, this, some of this beforehand, and then he wrote more of it afterwards, I believe, uh, in terms of sort of crafting it into a finished novel in the late 40s. And so a lot of people talk about how, it, in some ways, Holden Caulfield's journey 
mirrors the what a journey might be for a soldier who was on leave. Uh-huh. Um, huh. Oh, wow. He, I think he fought the Battle of the Bulge. And so he was in some serious, you know, combat or at least adjacent to it. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say too much about that because I don't, I don't know how exactly how much fighting he was involved in, but enough for it to be somewhat traumatic. And so I, I imagine it in some ways being like, you know how when, like when soldiers are together and they're in combat, there's certain ways of life and speaking and coping and all these things that manifest themselves and like they become part of the community. It's the same thing with a a team of athletes. Um, Yeah. It's the same thing with teenage girls. It's the same thing with adult women and adult men and, you know, every group of community of people, every community of people sort of begins to speak in its own sort of way. It, It communicates the, the sort of ethos of the group. And I, I, these young, these young men in this school, I, you mentioned that perhaps this sort of way of talking would fester and present itself among these guys, and it feels very performative. Like, yeah, like it does. They, like they speak that to speak that way is in its is sort of to stand up for yourself. To speak that yeah. way is its own sort of violence, right? Like, you, you mm-hmm. how when the kid finally punches him. And, or he kind of, uh, is it, it's not Ackley. It's the other, it's, um, Stadladder. 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 So eventually he kind of attacks Stadladder and then Stadladder dominates him. Right. And up to that point, if this sort of the violence up to that point has been building and building and building in the way they speak to each other. Um, and that's such an accurate thing among young men, I think, where, you're con- these guys are constantly jostling for position and for yeah. you know sort of like to be the so, who's so, going to be the alpha exactly and then yeah. eventually you know the language the way you speak to each other is what is your you know your jab you know every time you say one of those words or you call him something or you accuse him of something it's like a jab it's a jab and a jab and a jab and it's a body blow and you're throwing them back and forth until eventually the only option you have is to actually fight the person and so mm-hmm, the language I mm-hmm. think is there's a sort of uh, there's a sort of little each little time they say that it's a sort of attempt to gain the upper hand over the other person and those sorts of communities I think have a way of the artificiality of them I think and the artificiality that they promote can have a way of producing that sort of like the necessity for that sort of um, interaction between young men i don't i'm sure that the same something similar happens with young women in, in an all-girls school but and and i also was never a young woman so i don't i don't know but this rings so true in terms of the way young men who are trying to make their way in the world and also make the way amongst each other would communicate uh-huh. with each other hmm. and i don't like not not every group of young men gets together and says you know these particular words Young men are always doing something the like this, it, right? Yeah. The tone of it, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, that point that you brought up, David, that at this age, I mean, and maybe even into adulthood, also, there's this kind of constant uh, evaluation and assertion of where you are in the hierarchy, yeah. And when friendships form, that hierarchy usually is pretty fixed. You know, like when I was with my friends, there were certain groups, I was the alpha and there were other groups where I wasn't the alpha, but when the groups were forming, um, 
there was always this sort of negotiation or this time of negotiation with my male friends, like, okay, who's the leader here and who are the followers and who gets to dictate the terms and who gets to listen to the terms. All those things were sort of negotiated. And the negotiations as a 16 year old, are, they can be pretty brutal. They're, mm-hmm. They can be really, really rough because we're boys. We haven't learned kind of like these finer skills, these more graceful skills of like settling those sorts of disputes with any sort of grace. So, and what I think is really interesting about these opening, especially after we meet Mr. Spencer. Yeah. I want to bring that up. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I want to talk about that also. Like that's basically the opening of the book and why is the case. So, um, well, you mentioned hierarchies because that comes up in this conversation that he has because he keeps saying to Spencer, it says on page 17, at least in, in the version that I have, um, they're talking about his paper, right? Spencer's kind of going through his paper and, um, and he, he just had, he just reads the part where Spencer reads the part where Holden wrote to him, dear Mr. Spencer, this is all I know about the Egyptians and so forth. And then he puts the paper down and then Spencer asks him, do you blame me for flunking you boy? He said, Mm. and then he says, no, sir, I certainly don't. I said, I wished he'd stop calling me boy all the time. And so he, the, 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 the sort of question of condescension and hierarchy comes up right away here at the beginning. And mm-hmm. then it comes throughout this whole section because then he calls, as Heidi pointed out earlier, he's calling the other guy boy, <laughs> Ackley right. boy. So he hates, he's calling Ackley exactly what he hates being called. Mm. And, and they all, everybody is constantly, uh, you know, trying to uh, sort of figure out not just where they are in the hierarchy, but avoid being beneath somebody else in the hierarchy. That's the more important yeah. thing. It doesn't, it doesn't matter so much who you're over, but it matters who you're under a lot. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, and when we meet Stradladder, he's so clearly, <laughs> he, Holden can't stand him, but he's very clearly, he's built really well. He's good looking. He's good with the girls, which is something that every young man wishes he had the capacity for. But every young man, now I'm speaking categoricals. I was always thinking, (laughs) golly, I'm just so, I'm so bad at this. I don't know what to say. I just am so awkward. But Stradlider somehow has this kind of magical capacity. And then you became a writer. (laughs) <laughs> and Stradlatter, I think what's important about Stradlatter is that Holden sees that his ability with the girls is because it's not authentic. And Holden, we kind of learn a little bit later in the story, Holden kind of has this, this kind of compass that he's not going to talk to girls. He's not going to try to like make out with girls if... He's not genuinely interested in them. And this is what he can't, one of the things that he can't stand about Stradladder is that Stradladder doesn't care at all. And yeah, that he doesn't gets care about girls. the girl as a person. So this theme that's going to emerge very loudly as the book continues to go on, maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, of Holden's attempt in this, in this ill-formed stumbling way to be authentic in some way is already kind of showing itself in his relationship with who is this, the top dog Stradladder. Mm. Hey, Heidi, I have a question for you. Mm. Um, and I, I want to get to that in a second, but I want to take a break here because I want to tell everyone about some friends of ours who have a pretty cool program. 
So there's this thing called onlinegreatbooks.com. So what they're trying to do is help people develop a habit of reading classic books. So they have books like those by Homer, Cicero, Spinoza. I mean, you could read Nietzsche if you wanted. Um, So you go to onlinegreatbooks.com and it's designed to help you develop that regular habit of reading. So there's weekly reading goals, there's reminders, there's accountability tools. There's a dedicated community, not unlike probably what you have here with close reads that can help keep you on track and schedule uh, with your reading. They have check-ins and reading goals like in, in a system that's designed to help you progress through the great books where you just have to read uh, for one hour each week, three times. So three one-hour reading sessions each week, if, if you can make sense of the math that I just tried to produce there. Um, and every month, what they're going to do is they're going to send you a carefully selected edition of one of those great books directly to your home. So you don't have to worry about ordering or anything like that. Now, I know sometimes we like to curate that, but also sometimes when you're trying to keep the habit, you know, having some help like this can... Uh, can be helpful. So they begin with Homer and then they're going to progress through Plato and Aristotle, you know, Descartes, Shakespeare, and on through the moderns. And then they also have a bunch of resources to go along with that. So they have two-hour video conferences to discuss the text. Um, there's Socratic seminars by, uh, led by trained Socratic hosts. Um, and what you can do if you want to participate in this, if you're interested in, in joining, then you can go to onlinegreatbooks.com to join their list and receive an executive book summary, which is a digest of all their reading lists and more. So it seems like something that'd be right up the alley of all our close read listeners. Even if you are not ready to actually sign up for the whole thing, go get on their mailing list because they have lots of great resources and uh, research and blog posts and things that they send out that are interesting to people who just love books. So even if you're not ready to join the full program, you can do that. But if you want to join the program, you can head over to onlinegreatbooks.com and then enter the code Cersei and they'll give you 25% off your first three months. Or you can go to onlinegreatbooks.com slash Cersei and you can get 25% off there as well. So this is a, it's a cool program. Uh, you may have heard about them on podcasts like The Art of Manliness um, if, you, if you or the men in your family listen to that podcast. So again, that's onlinegreatbooks.com slash Cersei or you can go to uh, onlinegreatbooks.com and enter the code Cersei to get 25% off. Um, to, like I said, it's a pretty cool program and it uh, seems you know, right up the alley of our, uh, those of you who are listening and participating in the, in the Close Reads community. Um, so okay, Heidi, I've got to gotta ask you a question now. Proceed. You have two kids. Right. I do. How old are your kids again? Uh, 13 and 10. Okay. So just let's imagine that your kids are a few years older, I guess, for the sake of this, this conversation. I, ma- I imagine that you imagine that all the time anyway. You're constantly thinking about <laughs> it probably. True. Time, time passing such as it does and so forth. Indeed. Um, what would you tell your kids? What would you tell Jack and Lucy if they either were friends with Holden Caulfield or wanted to be friends with Holden Caulfield? That's a great question. A really, really good question. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about Holden Caulfield to me in reading it this time is that I have absolutely no idea what Holden Caulfield would be like if I just met him. Because he admittedly lies often and we see from the very beginning tells people what they want to hear yeah. in order to deflect attention or whatever it is from his true and very troubled self. 
And maybe that's a human thing. Maybe that's an adolescent thing. Maybe that's just Holden, but it's not. That's, you know. Uh, and so I, I think if I met Holden, I would probably think he was a delightful young man who should be friends with my son. Much like the woman in chapter mm-hmm. eight. Yep. You know, and I, I have to admit, I'm a sucker for this kind of, you know, I have my, my 13 year old has friends over and if they come into the kitchen, hello, Mrs. White, thank you for the snacks. Thanks for having me over. My mom says, hi. What's the kid from Leave it to Beaver that everyone, yes. Eddie, Eddie, yeah, right. Eddie, Haskell yes. Eddie Haskell. Like I am like, what a nice young person. Like, so that's. There are so <laughs> few of you. Right, exactly. So, and that I think is part of the invitation of this novel is like, this is the kid calling everybody a phony inside who nobody has any real interaction with him throughout the entire novel thus far that we've read. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's part of what I think Salinger is trying to get us to pay attention to if we're willing to go under the surface a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I probably would be like, yes, Let's let's spend more time with him. Now, if I did know the true troubled state of Holden Caulfield's soul, I would have some boundaries for sure. But then I also think, wouldn't I want that? Wouldn't I want to be able to love that kind of child? Like that boy who's so troubled, wouldn't I want to be him to be in my house and eating dinner at my table and seeing what a healthy family is and all those kinds of things? Um, so that's a different question. But if I just met Holden, I probably wouldn't be able to see into the troubled state of his soul. Hmm. Tim, how would you respond to Holden? Like, say you're Mr. Spencer, but but make him yourself, not that he's kind of a weirdo. So you don't have hmm. to actually imagine yourself as him. <laughs> but like, say say then Holden's in your class. How would you respond to him? I mean, have you ever had a student that was kind of a Holden Caulfield? Oh man, yeah. Well, has anybody that's a teacher not had a Holden Caulfield? Exactly. (laughs) That might be the better question. There's a question that I had when I was reading that section, which is, does Spencer, what does Spencer really think about Holden Caulfield? And my, my, I think that Spencer believes that Holden Caulfield is a promising student. Like, I think that he sees that he's really bright and capable Otherwise, I don't know that he'd be wasting his time with them. I may be, I may be wrong. Maybe, maybe Spencer is just kind of like, he's doing his duty. And because he knows that Holden is failing out, he's got to have that conversation with them. But my hunch, based on the kind of interaction about the exam question, is that he sees Holden as having great potential and he's falling short of that potential. And that's why he's been, he's, wanted to kind of call him in and have this friendly chat with him. And I also think that Holden likewise sees himself through Spencer's eyes as a boy of of promise and disappointment. Mm. That's kind of my hunch. I might be reading, let me pause and say, did you guys read that that way? That, that Holden sees the, he sees himself as a disappointment because of through Spencer. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think, think the that's key part is it. the key part also though is that Spencer sees him as full of promise. He's not just another kid. He's not just another student, but he's a very promising student. I think it's meaningful that Holden has a sort of um uh affection for mm-hmm. him. He calls him weird in writing about it, but you can tell he has a sort of 
he respects him. Respect. Yeah. I think that's a great word. Respect, love, affection, whatever for this man. Um, and recognizes that Spencer has taken an interest in him and is grateful for that. You know, even if he puts on a facade, you know, that underneath the facade, there is, there is a sort of um, thankfulness for, for who Spencer or for what Spencer has done for him. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And Heidi, do you see Spencer? Does Spencer believe that Holden has great potential? He's not just another student. Yeah, I do think that. And I think he's sick. And I think he messed up the interview. Like it wasn't what he wanted either. Yeah. And what? so I'm sure you guys have heard this. You know how people say, and I think it's true, that if you read the first book in the Harry Potter series, it's just like the, the entire series in like, it's the same trajectory of the entire series just encapsulated in the first book. And that's true. And I think that this interaction with Spencer is the same thing in this novel. Mm. Like it's, it's the whole novel just in, which is this young man who is very promising, who is really smart, who is looking for true human connection, who who wants someone to take him under his wing yeah, and show him how to live in this really confusing world and then fails to do it. Mm-hmm. Like can't do it because there's some kind of sickness in Spencer. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a flaw in the system. There's, there's a, a, you know, because this is a book about the systematic loss of innocence to a good person. And, and that is what happens here. And it's not really Holden's fault. It's not really Spencer's fault. It's systemic. And it's due to some kind of encroaching sickness and illness and disease. And and that's what happens in this first interaction. It could have been redemptive. And instead, it takes like a downward turn. It's not really anybody's fault. It just happened. Well, there's that, there's that really interesting line where it's at the end of the chapter, end of chapter two... Um, he says, look, sir, don't worry about me. I mean it. It'll be all right. I'm just going through a phase right now. Everybody goes through phases and all, don't they? And then Spencer says, I don't know, boy. I don't know. And then he says, I hate it when somebody answers that way. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure they do, I said. I, I mean it, sir. Please don't worry about me. I sort of put my hand on his shoulder. Okay, I said. Wouldn't you like a cup of hot chocolate before you go? Mrs. Spencer would be... And then he makes up a lie and leaves, basically. And that there's a there's so much pathos in that moment oh, because he's basically so saying it's okay don't worry about me i'm going it's just a phase and then he he asks you know everybody goes through phases and all don't they and the the longing for mm-hmm. the answer that he hopes for in that question um is is so so sad and then spencer saying i don't know boy right. i don't know is both probably true but also maybe not the answer that he should have given, you know, right. I, don't, I don't know how he should have answered it. Um, because, and he's saying, I, I don't know if this is really a phase in you, <laughs> you know, I don't know what, what's normal for people to go through. And this is an old man mm. saying that, you know, the, the fact that this old man who's sick and has so much experience with all these kids says that suggests there's a, there's a lot more under the surface of that answer. Cause he's been around kids for years. He's been a teacher. He's experienced, he's lived life. And he doesn't know the answer to the question about whether this is just a phase that all people go through. Mm. Um, and then, you know, Holden goes back to saying, Oh, sure. Sure. They do. He's kind of, he turns it around as if he's trying to encourage them. 
And then he says, don't, don't worry about me. And then wouldn't you like a cup of hot chocolate? Like he almost, he tries to offer him something like he doesn't, Spencer doesn't know what to give him. So he says, you know, we'll give you some hot chocolate. We'll try to, we'll give you something pleasant, something warm, you know, we'll, he, he, that's the best he can do in the moment. And um, both very sad. And also, um, as Heidi said, I love that you said it's a microcosm for the whole book because it does sort of set up the, the longing and the, mm-hmm. the longing that's in um, Holden and the recognition that people aren't able to give him the answers that he wants. Right. And his own, his, his own contribution to his feelings of disconnection and, and how he dis, deceivingly tries to care for people, but then ends up just alienating himself from any kind of true help. Right. Instead of saying to Spencer, like, I'm so lost. I don't know what to do. What could I have done? Help me. Give me some kind of wisdom. Right. Those instead of that, I'm okay. Just just leave me alone. Don't take care of me. And then he, I mean, he lies to him, but he's doing it because he's he's so lost. And so that's, I mean, the thing about Holden, he's oh man, you're right. It's just so terribly sad how he distances himself from everybody, but everybody in the novel does it. If you notice, he only has one-on-one conversations with anybody and in every single one of them, they always miss each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if Holden was in my class, I think I would feel, when I've had conversations like this with students, the thing that I just wish, I wish, I wish that they knew that just because I'm adult does not mean that I am their um, judge and jury. And, right. and I think like anytime that you're a teacher or, you know, like a parent and your kids have friends, it's not a terrible thing, but the student or the kids just view you positionally. They tend to view you positionally first and as a human being second, because for all of the reasons of, for all of the accumulated experience of your life, um, teachers are there to force knowledge into your head, to assess your grades and to manage your behavior. That's kind of how you view a teacher, right? And I just, I, there's so many times that I had conversations with students and I wish that I could just sort of like take that position off, set it aside and just say, Hey, we're just two human beings in this classroom. You can tell me what's going on because I know there's something going on, you know, and I'm not, I'm in this moment, I'm not supposed to be your judge. I don't, I'm not going to manage your behavior because it's like the only, it's the thing that can't happen in the scene that we're talking about. And it's so heartbreaking because just like you guys are saying, like if he could just say, Heidi, if he could just say, Mr. Spencer, I failed out. I'm having a terrible time. I'm lost. I don't know what to do. I think Mr. Spencer could help him. Well, but, but, but the thing is he probably could, but also, like I think as adults, as teachers, what happens is 
like, so say we say what you're saying that you want to say that you wish you could say to students, right? Or you wish Spencer could have said to that, that I'm here for you, essentially. Right, right. It's very difficult for young people, especially to, or for all of us, let's be honest, to <laughs> actually do that asking, right? To actually right. reach out to the person, even if the, even if Tim, even if you say, like, even, I mean, you're, you're my good friend. If you say to me, I'm here for you, it's still hard for me to be, yeah. to, to sort of, um, be vulnerable enough to go to you if I need something, right? Or if I need, yeah. you know, so that's, and that's exponentially more hard, I think, for students, even if they respect a teacher. Um, every student's different, of course. Every student-teacher relationship is different. But it's, it's sometimes the ways that they go about doing that reaching out for help often can go unmissed. And I was thinking a lot about, in, in this book, Holden is constantly trying to um, cr- to literally reach out to people, to yes. literally create contact. Yes. So here he reaches out and touches Spencer's shoulder, right? As It's as if to be encouraging to Spencer. But I think that there's a sort of, he's sort of reaching out for help mm-hmm. from Spencer. For sure. Spencer doesn't recognize it. Yes, You've got the is. stuff with his friends who, where I mentioned they fight earlier. He's sort of like constantly trying to like... Um, reach out for help there and in the end it leads to a fight and you'll see it throughout the novel he tries to reach out for help and people don't recognize that's what he's doing they recognize it as a threat or mm-hmm. something condescending or insulting or something like that and so he doesn't know how to express his desire to reach out and then he kind of buries that desire in this sort of immature talk of sex and necking and things like that which is really just another way of him trying to express this longing to have mm-hmm somebody connection to have connection yeah and he doesn't know how to express that he doesn't know how to ask and people aren't recognizing when he is trying to reach out for them and that's just as sad as his inability to actually ask is people not recognizing that he is trying or when he's trying right i completely agree with that and i think sometimes even Holden himself doesn't know how hard he's trying to reach out Yeah, yeah yeah and that's and that i think is the purpose of the the, the form of this novel, that it is written in the form of an internal monologue in which we as the readers, we have this, this position of tragicomic irony in which we, if we're paying attention, we know more about Holden than he knows about himself. Mm. And we are profoundly alienated then from him because we're just the reader. We can't help. I do you, I, you know, you know, I'm a therapist and like a nice person. Like, I just want to like call in this novel and be like, tell me your story. Well, and I'll, you're like, a therapist. I'll ask questions. Well, right. Exactly. I know. I'm actually pray for me. So that, but that <laughs> like that is part of we as the reader are part of the alienation of this the structure of this novel, which is kind of brilliant. We have access that nobody else has to hold in and yet we cannot help him. And that I think is part of what makes us love or hate this novel. Mm. There's a dissonance there. Yes. We're, we're either like, Oh, this kid is insufferable, which in some ways he is. And like many of our students are. Yes, but that's also very painful for us. Yeah, and then or else, like Jesse, who is a genuinely kind and loving person, she's reading this, and I, I know Jesse. It's like I just want to help this boy, right? And you can't, and so it creates. And then you're like, how many other people are like this? And I think that's the question that Salinger is asking, or the invitation that he's giving to the reader is like, 
this is the universal human experience. Mm. I'm so glad that you mentioned that the form of the novel does this because it gives us more. We know him in some ways more than he knows himself. Yes. And yet at the same time, part of that dissonance comes from the fact that we don't know when we can trust him. Mm, that's so true. we don't know when he's talking about himself. Does he know what he's talking about? But even if he doesn't know what he's talking about, we still question whether he knows what he's talking about. And sometimes the only thing that we really can trust is the things that other people say in conversations that he's remembering or recording. And so the, the question of how reliable he is, is always under the surface, even as we're trying to, even as we can read between the lines and know more about him than he knows. So it creates, it's a very complicated hierarchy of knowledge of, of like intimacy, if that makes right. sense. And, totally and be, sense. because that's all wound together, it creates that dissonance in the reader, which you're talking about, I think. I think all those things are at play that lead to our various responses to it and to right. him. Well, and we even ask ourselves, why is he writing this? Which, you know, from the beginning, if you're paying attention, that he's in some kind of sanatorium. He's in, like, he's, he's been sent somewhere to rest. I can't remember how he phrases it, but it's on the, like the first page of the novel. And he's saying, I'm, you know, he's somewhere. Yeah, this isn't too far from this crummy place. Oh, he says he's in Hollywood. That isn't too far from this crummy place. And he comes over and visits me practically every weekend. Right. So he's he's going to drive me home. An asylum. He's having a rest cure. He's, you know, he's been sent away to get better. It's probably, you know, it's like a therapy camp. So, um, <laughs> but he still doesn't know himself. He doesn't say anything like, I've learned from my yeah. therapy sessions that I'm profoundly grieving for my lost brother and that yeah. I am searching for connect, human connection and I can't find it anywhere. You know, so he's still blind, he's revealing himself. And yet, not to himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the what? Yeah, yeah. Well, we should probably work towards wrapping this up. But I, I wanted to go Seriously? back. Seriously, to... we've been talking for like five minutes. There's so much more to say. Fit <laughs> <laughs> a solid hour, hour and ten minutes or something. Um. So I, but but we're not going to go quite yet. I'm just saying we need to work towards it. <laughs> it's a signal to the audience that this isn't going to go on forever. <laughs> this is so meta. Thank you for that insight. Um, uh, so. I want to go back to what we were doing there with Peace Like a River for a little while and give you guys each a chance to mention a passage that we didn't get to, but that was that was meaningful or stood out to you. So Tim, I'll let you do that first. If there's a passage or a line or a conversation or something in these first nine chapters. Um, and the first episode, of course, there's always a lot of intro stuff and we'll, we will hearken back to things that we didn't get to in this section as we read the next two sections and then do the Q&A later. But... Um, is there anything that you have in mind, Tim? Sorry, David. Or should we let I Heidi go first? <laughs> yeah, if, if Heidi's ready. I marked something, I just can't find it. Well, how about whoever finds it first? Because now I'm David, do you have you. something? Sorry, Heidi. There you go. Deflect Wait. to David. It's a good... Yeah. <laughs> well, you were looking first. Um, I want to look at um, the beginning of chapter three. There's a passage that... Um, he, he's talking about where he lived in the Ossenberger Memorial wing. And it starts with, I'm the most terrific liar you ever saw in your life. It's awful. If I'm on my way to the store to buy a magazine even, and somebody asked me where I'm going, I'm liable to say I'm going to the opera. It's terrible. So when I told old Spencer, I had to go to the gym to get my equipment and stuff. That was a sheer lie. I don't even keep my bleep equipment in the gym. Um, that little paragraph mm-hmm. is really interesting. I think it goes back to some of the 
point of view stuff that you were talking about. Um, because he is so honest, almost to a fault, like so self-deprecatingly honest and not in the sense that like, look at me, this haha, this is, this is funny about myself or look at, I look terrible in this shirt, you know, <laughs> it's uh, or this photo was bad of me or something like that. Um, it, he says, I mean, he's being very direct, but it feels like it's understatement, right? Or it feels like it's rhetorical. I'm the most terrific liar you ever saw in your life. It's awful. I mean, he's not, he, he's being honest with us. And that's the ironic thing. And he's, he, he really might be the most terrific liar you ever saw in your life. And even to say that he's a terrific liar, like he's, he's saying, I'm good at lying. I'm better at lying than anybody. And it's terrible. And he recognizes that it's terrible. But then he also recognizes the skill that he has to do that. And that I think sets up a lot of the book because it, it sets up the way he interacts with people, the, the games that he plays, the, 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 the facade that he puts on, the characters that he puts on, the, even the, the chapter in chapter eight where he, he um, meets the woman and says that he's... Give, well, no, he, the, no, he meets the... Um, who does he say that he's he, the funny name? The, well, there's all these scenes. I'll just put that yeah. one. <laughs> all these scenes where he's constantly telling people that he's somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. or making up how he knows them or, or whatever. He's playing a character. And, you know, so on the one hand, he's a liar, but on the other hand, he's also an actor. And it gets to something so deep within him mm-hmm. early in the novel. Um, but he does it in a way that is so... Like, he develops the character, Salinger develops the character so deeply and with so much pathos here in one paragraph that um, that is so sad and that I, th- I think is, is worth kind of remembering and, and keeping, keeping front and center. Tim, did you find yours? Yes. For me, it's page 78. Holden has stepped into a phone booth to call somebody and he tries to think of various people to call. And which, then he which chapter is it in nine chapter nine? Let me see. Beginning oh. of nine. Basically yeah. For me, second page of nine. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I ended up, not calling anybody. I came out of the booth after about 20 minutes or so, got my bags and walked over to that tunnel where the cabs are and got a cab. I thought he was in the phone booth, not calling anybody for 20 minutes. Yeah. He was just in there thinking of who he could call and he couldn't think of anybody to call. It was just this little, and in the sentence about after 20 minutes or so, is buried in the middle of the sentence. It's like he's almost sort of minimizing it even to us. And then you think, you were in there for 20 minutes, you poor kid, trying to think of who to call, and there was nobody to call. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just going to say jokingly, he needs a social media account because then he'll have all these friends. You know, I was going to say that sarcastically. But then at the same time, this is one of those books that I think shows why young people yes. have invested themselves so deeply. No doubt. In mm-hmm. TikTok or Instagram or... Well, they don't use Facebook anymore, but they did once upon a time. But you know what I'm saying? Like the, they, Their lives get wrapped up in those things because then they don't have to stand in the, the phone booth for 20 minutes and figure out who to call. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a... Mm-hmm. It's, this is sad. <laughs> it is. I, th- I think it's funny. As I'm thinking back about why my friend and I 
broke up and why this novel was so like a sort of wedge. And I do wonder if I just, he couldn't understand why anybody would devote time to this character. And I couldn't understand how anybody couldn't see this character mm-hmm. like Holden Caulfield, you know, and I'm sure there was some of me mm-hmm. identified with Holden Caulfield and I wanted to like be recognized. Mm. Right. And by having the book not appreciated by my friend, that part of me wasn't being See, recognized. Yeah. yeah. It was your way of reaching out and he wasn't respond. He wasn't noticing that you were touching him on the shoulder. And I don't think that I knew that, that I was reaching out. I mean, I'm sure, sure yeah. that I did not ostensibly was like, okay, this is a bid for my friend to see me and to, re- you know, I'm sure that did not cross my mind, but on some like lower level. Yeah. I can Im- totally imagine that. Mm-hmm. Heidi, passage? Yes. Mine's the baseball mitt passage. And for me, it's on page 49. Uh, it's in, it's like two pages into three pages into chapter five. He's doing the, um, the write up. <laughs> He's writing the descriptive essay for Stradladder, which in itself is a tragic moment, right? <laughs> um, yeah, why does he do that? that? That's really so interesting, right? There's no, there's no benefit to him to do this for his friend, except that maybe his, this guy who's not even really his friend will like him. Well, and to Tim's point, I think if you, if you love this novel and you love this character, it does feel a bit like a rejection to have someone hate him because he's, he is unlikable. And yet he's also just full of this, kind of goodness you know like he'll mm-hmm. write somebody's essay for him that he doesn't even like and gets no benefit from and and it's not just because he's a pushover it's not just because of that he is constantly trying to make connections and i think that moment and i'm going to i'm going to stop here in a minute but I, I think the moment when he gets so angry at ackley for not playing canasta with him is like that just like broke my heart because he does so much for this horrible kid who's like puts his pimply face on his pillowcase <laughs> and then he won't even get up and play canasta with him, which is a game that Ackley likes. You know, and yeah. it's just so, and it, I mean, Holden doesn't even say he likes it. He just wants to be with somebody. But anyway, so yeah. this part about the baseball met. The thing is, I couldn't think of a room or a house or anything to describe the way Stradlatter said he he had to have. I'm not too crazy about describing rooms and houses anyway. So what I did, I wrote about my brother Allie's baseball mitt. It was a very descriptive subject. It really was. My brother Allie had this left-handed fielder's mitt. He was left-handed. The thing that was descriptive about it, though, was that he had poems written all over the fingers and the pocket and everywhere in green ink. He wrote them on it so that he'd have something to read when he was in the field and nobody was up at bat. He's dead now. He got leukemia and died when we were up in Maine on July 18th, 1946. You'd have liked him. He was two years younger than I was, but he was about 50 times as intelligent. He was terrifically intelligent. His teachers were always writing letters to my mother, telling her what a pleasure it was having a boy like Allie in their class. Then he goes on for a while. I'm going to skip down to the God he was a nice kid, though. He used to laugh so hard at something he thought of at the dinner table that he just about fell off his chair. 
I was only 13 and they were going to have me psychoanalyzed and all because I broke all the windows in the garage. I don't blame them. I really don't. I slept in the garage the night he died and I broke all the GD windows with my fist just for the hell of it. I even tried to break all the windows on the station wagon we had that summer, but my hand was already broken and everything by that time and I couldn't do it. It was a very stupid thing to do, I'll admit, but I hardly didn't even know I was doing it and you didn't know, Allie. My hand still hurts me once in a while and when it rains and all, and I can't make a real fist anymore, not a tight one, I mean, but outside of that, I don't care much. I mean, I'm not going to be a GD surgeon or a violinist or anything anyway. Anyway, that's what I wrote Stradladder's composition about, Old Allie's Baseball Mitt. I happened to have it with me in my suitcase, so I got it out and copied down the poems that were written on it. All I had to do was change Allie's name so that nobody would know it was my brother and not Stradladder's. I wasn't too crazy about doing it, but I couldn't think of anything else descriptive. Besides, I sort of liked writing about it. There's almost like nothing to say about that passage mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. so rich and it's so revealing and compelling and I mean, just sad. Like it's like one of the saddest things you've ever read, but mm-hmm. he, and, and, I, and it's also going back to David's point, like the form and the content of this particular novel are so intertwined. Like he starts talking about the baseball mitt and then he's not talking about the baseball mitt. He's talking about his brother. And then he's not talking about his brother. He's talking about his own grief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then, and it's just this progression into his, but he's not seeing it. He's disconnected completely from himself and yet it's there, right? It's just coming out of him. And it's also a meta narrative because he's right now writing about it. Like finally having the chance to tell his story. So I just think this passage is incredibly rich and, and, and very, very emotional and moving. And, and to offer this as a gift to Stradladder uh-huh. and to have Stradladder reject it. Yep. Albeit Stradladder didn't understand what he was doing, but still he rejects like, he rejects this. It's so crushing. Right. At it's the same so time that he's, that, that Holden thinks that he's dishonoring this girl that Holden Yes, loves. right. And that, yes, that, I mean, no wonder he jumped and tried to punch him in the face and he even can't do that right. It's just, well, yeah. Bleh. And the reason that he can't do that right in part is because, like he, he can't make a fist. He can't fight his, yes. the loss of his brother and his grief are holding him back from being able to participate in that fight. Like he, he can't engage in the fight at full strength because the grief. Right. The, the expression him. of the grief has crippled him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, I know. Mine well, we should silence we for should, Holden. <laughs> we should we should end there, and then we'll have a week of silence. Um, right? By the way, I just have to say this: like, <laughs> here is perfect. a plea. Here is a plea. You, listeners have got to give this book a chance. Got to give this book a chance. I get like all the language and everything that we talked about at the beginning of the show, but. Yeah, I just think it's just, it's, I'm remembering how good this book is. Well, for, I'll just remind people, after this, we're going to do Anne of Green Gables. So that'll be, if there's the cynicism in this book is too much for you, then we'll have a few weeks of the earnestness of Anne of Green Gables. So they'll balance each other out. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. Um, 
And Anne of Green Gables is also a book that has more going on than mm-hmm. it seems like on the surface, I think. So, well, do, you, do either of you want to offer any final thoughts before we go? I feel Not like, me. no. I just made my plea. Yep. <laughs> I right. agree with that. I do. I have a final thought. Here it is. That <laughs> I think one of the main results of a true literary life is the development of compassion for characters who are hard to love. Mm. And by extension, by extension, then a posture of humility and compassion towards the people that we encounter in our real life that are difficult to love. And I, I think that The Catcher in the Rye is is a book that offers that invitation and that plea. And I think, as Tim said, we should take it. Mm. Mm. It's a training ground. It's not just that. It's pleasurable, but it's a training ground for what you just said, Mm. hiding. Mm. Well, I can't can't add anything to that. That's well said from both of you. So next week we will talk about chapters 10 through 17. Um, and then of course you can, there's also the, uh, the episode of the crime and punishment, the, the second half of part one. So you can be listening to that and then gearing up for the first half of part two, which we'll do in uh, two weeks. Um, and then of course uh, I wanted to remind you about our friends over at online great books. That's onlinegreatbooks.com slash Cersei. You can also enter the code Cersei to get 25% off, or you can just sign up to get uh, their information that they they send out about, about all kinds of great books. So so cool resource if you want to participate in that. And uh, with that, I guess that's I guess that's all. Don't forget about the newsletter, closereads.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, at closereadspods. And of course, we hope you'll join the conversation over on the Facebook group. Uh, and you can search search for that on Facebook if you haven't joined it already. Click that little join button and we will approve you into the, into the group. Last thing before we go, I wanted to let people know that this spring, our literary bracket, which we do each year, is going to be on the great literary romances, the great literary couples. So be on the lookout for that. We're curating a list there now and uh, we'll be releasing that bracket for you to vote on in early March. So that's the last bit of business I wanted to share with you. But with that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.